You're listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a space for intellectual engagement, interdisciplinary collaboration, and a vibrant graduate community at James Madison University. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. I'm Becca, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Molson, Professor of Technical and Professional Communication and Director of the Undergraduate Program in Professional Writing, Rhetoric, and Technology and the Rhetoric and Composition Graduate Program at West Florida University. Dr. Melanson specializes in rhetorics of health and medicine, disability studies, and programmatic issues in technical and professional communication. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Well, thank you for having me, Becca. All right, so let's just jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about you and your scholarship? Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I started as a full-on tech com sort of scholar, and then I fell into disability studies sort of from the back end out of a class project, the Capstone Project at the University of Cincinnati, where I first got my first academic job, and just felt that we needed more of a connection between technical and professional communication and disability studies, which led to the first book that I published, um, which was Rhetorical Accessibility, which talked about the intersection of those two things. And then from there, I moved more into programmatic work um, because of a conversation I had at a conference. And then, as weird things happen in higher ed, as I was going out for tenure, I determined that I really wanted to do more work around looking at technical communication and its intersections with health and medicine. And then a few years later, lo and behold, uh, we managed to start a field. I guess, called the Rhetoric of Health and Medicine, which now has its own journal, which I'm fortunate enough to co-edit. And um, it's more of a defined area now. People go to grad school to work in the Rhetoric of Health and Medicine. And so I just kind of helped make a an area and give it a name. And that that's sort of the sh- very short version of a, <laughs> a lot of different things that I do, but they still kind of all relate. And some of my most current work is truly at the intersection, again, of technical communication and the rhetoric of health and medicine around usability and something I call patient experience design. Mm. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what's the most recent piece you're working on? Um, Right now, I'm in the midst of a large project that'll take a couple of years to probably finish. Okay. And it has an international component. I'm about to head over to Europe to do some usability testing with patient education materials using an innovative method of plus minus check, okay. which was uh, started by Menno de Jong at the University of Twente. And his was plus minus. It's where you ask people to go through and put a plus by things they understand and uh, a minus by things that are not quite as clear. We added a check mark to add to talk about visual design and document design in materials. And so all of that is based on this other idea of context. So in rhetoric and technical and professional communication, you talk about purpose and it's always tied to a very specific context. And the rhetoric of health and medicine, I'm of the opinion we need to shrink context. And so patient experience design is around micro context and how people use information in very specific, probably small circumstances, like in their house, what happens when they leave the doctor's office. Those are not no longer bigger contexts, they're smaller ones, but we need to look at those differently. And so that's the premise of it. So I was looking at your teaching philosophy on your website, <laughs> and I was I was pretty impressed by it. Could you share that philosophy with us oh, and expand on it? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> here's the weird thing. That philosophy dates to when I was on the job market. 
12 years ago. Oh. It hasn't been changed fundamentally since then. And so the fact it still sort of holds up is kind of... I think it does, yeah. Um, I think the most important part of it still has to do with collaboration. So much of technical and professional communication is all about working with somebody else in some capacity. Yeah. And that's still the most part, the biggest part that I still hammer home to a lot of students at both the undergraduate and the graduate level is that we have to be able to work with other people to produce something. So even this right here is a collaboration in and of itself, right? Yeah. It's a different type of writing and communication, but it's still that. And, and so the part, that part is still really important to me and underscoring the fact that writing is hard. Writing is hard. <laughs> <laughs> and to to help demystify that, that it's okay for it to be hard and it's okay for it to not just flow out. Because here's the thing, I've never done anything else in my life but really technical professional communication. I've done some sort of other things, like I was sort of an engineer in my first life, but most of that, what I did was writing and communicating. And it's not easy. And to try to make that process more transparent and for people to be more comfortable with, it's just not going to flow out of you for the vast majority of us is an important thing to be able to teach and to talk about. Yeah. You were here at JMU as one of the Feminisms and Rhetorics 2019 conference plenary speakers. Mm -hmm. Could you give us a little preview of what you'll be speaking about during your talk tomorrow? I can. The first part of the talk is I acknowledge the fact that I was probably not anybody's first choice to come and talk at feminism and rhetoric. While I do feminist work, I've not been one of the vocal sorts of folks about it. And you can see it in different things that I do, which is one of the things I'm going to talk about tomorrow. So the title of my talk tomorrow is Quiet Feminism. And the premise of that is outlining a theory of quiet feminism and the goal of outlining that theory is to open up a new space so that people who may not feel comfortable being vocal being radical which is a big part of feminism in higher education that they feel comfortable having a space to invoke their own form of feminism which is what i call quiet feminism so the theme of this year's FemRet is DIY feminism. How do you see that being embodied in the field of rhetoric today? Oh, it's everywhere. And I think the idea of quiet feminism is do it yourself because you have to do it and invoke change where you are. And that's mostly about finding ways to do it yourself and to enforce it. Yeah. <laughs> so if you could see my hand, you could see my like making movement. But that's what it's about. And for me, all feminism is do it yourself because we make the biggest change in the smallest places and the everydayness of what we do. Mm -hmm. And that plays out in my own life through a lot of the mentoring that I do for graduate students and early career faculty. The do it yourself really is the embodiment of the spirit of feminism, particularly the way we have to play it out in structures that we're forced to work in and then figure out how to make them change. Mm -hmm. So it's from the inside out, and that's all about doing it yourself and finding ways to find the gap, the fissure, and just push on it. Mm -hmm. So that for me, that's how do-it-yourself plays out. It's just every day where you look around and go, hmm, what can I do today to get that thing done? Mm -hmm. If you could tell any of your students to read one scholar, who would it be and why? 
<laughs> well, it would depend on which hat that I'm wearing, I yeah. think, in some ways. Um, but in the spirit of Femorette, mm-hmm. I would say Sarah Ahmed and one of her older works. So she's Sarah Ahmed is very well known in rhetoric now because she just put out a book last year called Living a Feminist Life, which a lot of people has resonated with a lot of folks. I appreciate her older work more. Okay. I think. And so her book on being included is a look at institutional life and the way that you have to really work at making change. And I appreciated that because she looked at the university as an institution and an organization, and it aligns a lot with work coming out of organizational communication and management theory on how you make change. But one of the most important lines from her book on being included is that oftentimes when we write a policy, it becomes the thing that people perform instead of doing the work that it was meant to do. And she calls that the non-performative. And so a statement becomes non-performative, and so it loses all of its oomph. And the way some folks in higher ed end up performing through the non-performative and there's nothing behind it is a problem. Mm -hmm. And to remember that um, we need to do the work that we say that we're doing. Mm -hmm. It's for right now, in the spirit of Femoret, she would be the one. Is there something you're looking forward to at this year's Femoret? I am looking forward to thinking differently. In the sense of, I think a lot of us, when we hit a certain point in our career, and so I've been in higher ed for 12 years, and you kind of get known for one thing, right? Which was the biggest irony of being asked to do this in some ways is that, again, a lot of people will know me and appreciate my work, but they're never going to go, oh, Lisa's a feminist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That may not ever be the first thing that, that comes to their mind, but I think it's good that we all get out of our comfort zones, And so for me to accept this was a challenge to kind of go, okay, I can do that because, yeah, I do that. I just do it differently. And so I'm looking forward um, to sitting in sessions to just be encouraged to think in different ways than I normally do, which is nice. Um, It's the beauty of this job, and it's one that I think we sometimes forget. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Cool. Do you have any tips and tricks for getting through conferences? Don't overdo it. Okay. Meaning that you can't go to everything. You shouldn't go to everything. You need time to process in between if you're really going to get anything out of it. So that's the first tip. And the second is you have to do the thing that a lot of people in higher ed don't want to do. It's the networking thing. Mm. And while I hate the term network, honest to God, I hate it. The premise of it is really kind of cool. And you get to meet different people and to meet people whose work you may have read and to learn things about it. So I'll just tell you, in grad school, I read a book by Nedra Reynolds, uh, Writing Geographies, that I've loved because I used to do GIS planning and work as a consultant. And I just thought, oh, this is so cool. Somebody's talking about geography and writing and it's sort of tech commie and oh my God. And I've never done a whole lot with it, but it was a book that has stayed with me all these years. I just met Nedra Reynolds for the first time. Wow. And so that was absolutely lovely. And you have these kind of moments to where you can meet people or people that you just randomly sit down next to in the lobby 
And you should always embrace those kind of moments because you never know when one of those is going to end up being something that is miraculous in its own way. So those are my two tips. Don't overdo it. Don't be afraid to network. How did you get invited to FemRet? I'm not exactly certain, but one of the, uh, on the planning committee, Catherine Malloy, I know Catherine from the Red Arcus of Health and Medicine, and she is an assistant editor on the journal that I edit. And at some point through whatever backdoor deliberations, these things happen, she sent a initial inquiry message asking if I would be interested. And I initially kind of balked at the whole thing, but she helped convince me that it was okay. So here I am. (laughs) So here you are. And it's going to be okay. It's still (laughs) one of those moments to where I think it's good for all of us to kind of challenge our own assumptions about who can be a feminist and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's sort of the mantle that I'm carrying into the conference. Could you speak a little to your experience in editing that journal? Yes, we were crazy. <laughs> uh, and I don't mean to use a, a term that is weighted with a lot of things, but we went into it not fully knowing what it meant to edit a journal. We had a pretty good idea. But until you do it day to day, it's kind of like, oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, So we pitched this idea a couple of years ago, four years ago now, to the University of Florida Press, and they agreed to publish it. And once they gave, gave us the green light, it took a year to put out our first issue. So 2018 was our first year officially being a journal, and we did two double issues. And then this year, we've actually put out four. It's a quarterly journal, but it just takes a while to build up content. We were so fortunate that it's a vibrant area and people trusted us enough to send in their stuff. And it went through a pretty rigorous peer review process. So the editing for me has been, um, two things have been illuminating. One, Blake, Scott, and I, my co-editor, had an idea and a vision of what peer review should be. And we wanted it to be the best parts of what we had experienced in our careers. And so we do something a little different than other journals do. Our decision letters from the editors not only synthesize the other peer reviews, so we take the parts where they overlap, but in doing that, without doubt, you're getting our own view of what we feel is the most important parts of that piece. And authors have been pretty responsive and um, thankful for that in a lot of ways because you no longer have to go, what parts do I focus on? And we help with the split reviews. And we've gotten quite a few. And a split review in editing terminology means this person says, uh, let's move forward, take care of these things. But this person says, "Eh, we can move forward, but you need to take care of these things. And those things don't look the same. So where are you supposed to find yourself as an author? Uh, Most journals, you have to kind of figure that out, or the editor might give some very broad kind of what resonated. Mm -hmm. We take that a step farther and actually really synthesize it based on what we see as the most important contribution Mm -hmm. to the field. And that has been, one, a challenge. I'm sure. And two... um, It's a challenge because you're not only having to want to direct and be constructive and generative for the author, you also have to position yourself that your reviewers, you're going to may disagree with. 
and we make that process transparent. And so the reviewers see our decision letters as well as the other two reviews. Reviewer B is going to see reviewer A and vice versa, and they're both going to see how we interpreted their reviews. And that's a kind of tricky place to be. Yeah. And, and so from editing, we had a vision of what that should look like, and we've tried to enact it. And it's a challenge, and it's time-consuming. But so far, we think it's worth it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Lisa. Thank you so much for asking me, Becky. It was a ton of fun. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at JMU Cohen Center. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at cohencenter at jmu.edu. Our intro and outro music come from Phase 3 by Zylo Zico. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org.